Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Praise be to you all who are in Christ. Bruce, thank you. So we'll be finishing up First uh, Peter today. So it's my job to land the plane. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, hopefully it won't be too bumpy of a landing here. So uh, Peter, writing most likely from Rome to a series of churches uh, in modern-day Turkey, uh, these churches were undergoing a persecution common to the Christian life. Taking a stand for Christ, the gospel, biblical morality, and the world was pressing in upon them. So he has some words for us as he's closing out this epistle. And the first thing he does, he speaks not to those in the church, but he actually speaks to the shepherds. Now it's interesting because there's only two times in scripture where we see this, where the writer in the New Testament actually speaks directly to the spiritual leaders. So when I say elders here, you could interchange it based on your denomination, there's some flexibility here. Elders probably speaks more to the office itself. Uh, shepherd is more the act of how the leaders serve. 
Pastor is just the, the Latin word to shepherd. So he has some advice here for them. And he starts out in verse 1. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. It's important. All healthy churches need healthy spiritual leaders. If you follow through the book of Acts, everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, the first thing they did was assign spiritual leaders, or in their words, elders. Healthy churches need healthy spiritual leaders. I would say somewhat applicable for Ogletown right now as we search for a family pastor. And it's taken a while, and it's been great to get the updates. And as we get those updates, the flavor of what Peter says here in terms of what they're looking for or the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, I'm sure the pastoral search committee could stand up here and give the message for, for us today. But we're excited about what God is going to do in terms of bringing a new spiritual leader for us. Now, Peter does some things here. He gives himself three titles. Because when I think of the apostle Peter, I, I mean, I just said it. He's an apostle, which literally means one with authority. That's not how he introduces himself to these individuals nearly a thousand miles away. I exhort the elders among you as your what? Fellow elder. You know, the one thing about the Christian faith, it does not change. What Peter was doing as a spiritual leader in the church, most likely Rome, where he was um, residing, is no different than the spiritual leaders that he's writing to, the spiritual leaders that we have in place at Ogletown today called our shepherding team, or future spiritual leaders that God would grace us with. Fellow elder, secondly, he says he is a witness of the suffering of Christ. Now, for Peter, that's personal. He actually had an eyewitness of the crucifixion, but throughout this epistle, the suffering in Christ is broader than just being able to witness it. Because in verse 13 of the prior chapter, Peter says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. How do we share the sufferings of Christ? Well, it's any time we stand up for the gospel for Christ and we experience I'll just call it friction, for lack of a better word. You could call it condemnation, out-out rejection. We, we lose something. Being a Christian today is costly. And what Peter is saying to us here is there will be sufferings that come with it. And then lastly, he says he's also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. As you've walked through 1 Peter, you've noticed this bouncing back, this twofold dynamic between suffering and the glory to come. As Christians, it is nearly impossible to go through suffering today without having a future hope that one day God will make this right. Because the suffering that Peter's talking about here is just not rejection. There's many in this room that have struggled, that have suffered physically. You know, not just this week, this month, many years, 
perhaps a lifetime. Praise God that there is a coming a day where bodies will be made new and we will truly be glorified. Now he's going to move on and he's going to describe what the expectations are of elders, those who are leaders within the church, what should we expect, or more importantly, how should the shepherds serve? In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Make a note of that. It's not their flock. Ultimately, it's God's flock. He says, he uses three contrasting statements to describe an effective spiritual leader. He says, not under compulsion, but what? Voluntary. Not for sordid gain, your text may say greed, but with eagerness. Not lording it over them, but proving to be examples. Spiritual leadership is also servant leadership. And that's the expectation that we should have, and we should be praying for those who serve on the shepherding team here at Town? As being a past member of that, I know how much they care for each of us. And they deserve our, our, our prayers because it is a taxing, tough environment because of what God has called them to do. It's a spiritual office. It's not merely just a, a thing that you serve in for a period of time. It is literally a spiritual office ordained by God. He's going to go on here in verse 4 to carry on that thought about whose flock it is. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, that chief shepherd is only used of Jesus Christ. So as you think about those in spiritual leadership of, of a church, it's probably more accurate to think of them as under shepherds. So who ultimately is the shepherd of Ogletown Baptist Church? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of our church. Now, there is, it comes with a serving in this. It says, those allotted to your charge by proving to be examples. That allotted to their charge. And when I say it's a spiritual office, you know, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 13 that brings kind of a sobering element to serving, and hopefully people, the spiritual leaders, serve with an eagerness. But Hebrews chapter 13 says that when our spiritual leaders you know, meet Christ face to face, they will give an account for each of us. It is, a, it is, a, it is amazing to think about how much God cares about the care of his individual flock, the members, the body of believers through the various churches throughout the world. It says here chief shepherd, which is the way we could refer to Christ. But scripture also refers to Jesus as what? The good shepherd. John chapter 10 says, this is Jesus. I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, are you a sheep? Are you part of the body of believers that have trusted in Jesus Christ? You recognize what has occurred on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, and that ultimately 
you have responded to this act, this free gift by the good shepherd. It says here that they will receive an unfounding, or excuse me, unfading crown of glory, most likely metaphorically. There's five crowns spoken up in scripture. This is one of them for a shepherd that serves well. There is an imperishable crown that Paul describes for those who run the race well, live the Christian life faithfully. There is the crown of, a, uh, of rejoicing with those who have the gift and use their gift of evangelism. There is a crown of righteousness, which actually those believers that have a unique ability to focus their attention on the Lord's second coming. And then lastly, the crown of life, which is for those who can persevere under trials. So Peter is going to uh, come out of the gate with a message to the spiritual leaders. And now he's going to transfer his thoughts from shepherds to the sheep. And specifically, he's going to hone in on this aspect of humility or, or eliminating pride. And if you think about suffering and what that comes with it, ultimately our ability to be able to navigate those difficult trials of life will actually come down to our own level of humility in our life. It's an important virtue in the Christian life. Someone asked Augustine, the fourth century theologian, what is the most important Christian virtue? He said the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. And he does that, and humility is so important because it, it recalibrates our mind in the right places. God is God, and we are not God. So the question is, are you humble? Or perhaps, if I was to ask those around you, do you exhibit the virtue of humility in your life? It's one of those questions, it's kind of a trick question. I'm sure you're looking forward to getting trick questions on a Sunday morning here. But it's a trick question in a sense. It's the one virtue that if we think we have it, we've lost it. D.L. Moody, the famous pastor evangelist, would always pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. That's how our approach needs to be with humility. Let's dive into the text here. You're going to see four commands and three motivations, why we should move forward in a life of humility and also the motivation to bring it a sense of urgency to it. He starts out in verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Not exactly sure as to why he singles out young men. Perhaps you know of a young man who might be a little bit prideful, kind of you know, when you think about this, I'm sure when Peter's writing this, he's thinking about himself. He, is, he was be the poster child or the poster individual of a young man who is just arrogant, know-it-all. You know, and I'm not sure how many times I'd have to work through the text that he had to rebuke Christ. Christ would say, this is how it's going to go. And Peter would come in and say, no, it's not. We're I would never allow that. Then he moves on and says to them, 
And all of you, so all of us, clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. That word there, to clothe, it means to tie on. Literally, um, it's describing an apron that a servant would wear in that day to put on an outer garment as they were about to do some menial labor. The word picture of this, Philip's translation, which is a paraphrase translation, gives a good one. He says, wear, this is to Christians, wear the overalls of humility. So put on, put on. Uh, although one commentator says when it comes to humility, many Christians are too scantily clad. We need to dress up a, a little bit. You know, though, to be honest with you, as P- Peter is writing these words, he had a first-hand witness of what exactly this means. In John chapter 13, in the upper room, Jesus is, it's the night before his crucifixion, in John chapter 13, he's going to, uh, to say this. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to him. So Jesus owns everything. Colossians also says he's the creator of all things, and by him all things hold together. So he owns everything, and look at what our good shepherd does. He says, giving all things into his hands, and then he moves on. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Same, different words, same concept. He literally tied on a towel. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, something that we're very familiar with those stories. As a Christian, are we willing to make that level of sacrifice. That's not the shepherds. That's to me. That's to you. That is to all of us. And then he goes on with the third command. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. To humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God means to basically place yourself underneath, right? That recalibration of who God is versus who we are. And he says in the text that you, the, this idea of uh, the hand of God, when you were t- somewhat frequent in the Old Testament, every time we would, you see that, this idea of the hand of God, it conveys two thoughts, deliverance and power. Deliverance and power. And, you know, it's the understanding that you know, as we think about who God is, who Christ is, the sheer awesomeness of it. You know, we sing about it, we just sung about how awesome God is and how awesome his gift was to us to literally go uh, and to the cross and die for each one of us. Someone, it's a fairly graphic description, but they said, you know, we basically have a daily reminder of God, the power and significance of God. And he says, go outside and look at the sun. The sun which was created by God, 92 million miles away, and if you stare at it long enough, it will literally burn our eyes. That is the magnitude that I think we need to think about when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. The fourth command is casting all your anxiety 
upon him. You know, in, in chapter 1, verse 6, here he says, which I think we would all wholeheartedly agree with, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. It's important here that Peter's not saying like this idea of like just deny what you're feeling. Absolutely not. He recognizes the difficulty, the real hardships, just personal anguish that many of us face in life. But we have two options is what Peter's saying to us. We could cast it or we could carry it ourselves. And carrying ourselves is deadly. It's also a bit presumptuous when you think about it. And I'm speaking to myself here as someone who can be prone to worry. But on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, and his main thought was, don't worry about the things that God controls. Don't worry about the things that God controls. But it just so happens that, you know, we're, we, we naturally, our flesh takes on that, and we don't cast it, trust it over to God. We, we carry it. I heard this recently about, you know, someone dealing with anxious thoughts, and, you know, we're all, we've all been in that room or, or late at night where we're just, our mind is just racing. We don't know what to do with our thoughts. It's just, and it's probably been eating us up for not just a day, a week, a while. And the person posed a question saying that if you could hear Jesus Christ in the room next to you, would it change, hear you, him praying for you in the room next to you, would it change your mindset? Would it alleviate some of your anxiety, your anxious thoughts, your, the turmoil? And I say, and he says that because he was alluding to or reminding us that in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for those who are drawn near to him and who come to him by faith. It's a sobering reminder of this idea of casting it to Jesus. He knows our needs, he knows our struggles, he knows our trials, and he is praying for us. I came across this quote that captures the same thing. Robert Murray McShane, a famous uh, 19th century Scottish pastor, he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So those are the four commands. Let's quickly go through some of the motivations that we see here. In verse 5, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, quoting the Old Testament there. A verse that we've probably all heard many, many times. It, it probably is a worthwhile if we just slow down a little bit and think about what that means. You know, notice what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say God ignores the proud or God doesn't pay attention to the proud or God forgets the proud. What does it say? God opposes the proud. That's, that's pretty sobering when you think about it. The word literally means to, to fight against. 
I think we all want to move forward and be obedient to Scripture. Sometimes these type of motivations can make it crystal clear and give us the, the energy to move forward in obedience. So the motivation that he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Now throughout 1 Peter, there's two types of grace that he's dealt with. Mostly in the first chapter is saving grace. The grace that God gives us, the ability to believe and trust in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. But most of what 1 Peter talks about is this idea of sustaining grace. How do we live our life? God gives us free gifts. He gives us the ability to persevere in life. And then the last last item he says in verse 6, the last motivation, he may exalt you at the proper time. The world is all about the me, the selfie culture. Christianity is the antithesis of that. You know, the idea is the way up in the Christian life is down right now. But make no mistake about it. There is coming a day where God will raise all of us up and glorify us and make our bodies like his. So, starts out with a, a call, a challenge, a reminder to shepherds. He moves into this idea of to persevere through trials. We've got to have our minds right in understanding that God is God and eliminate any pride out of our life because when we can do that, that means we're dependent on God, we're relying on God. If we rely on ourselves, that will end badly. So, Let's transition here. He's going to transition. Now he's speaking to the sheep, the importance of humility. Now he's going to move into the topic of resisting the devil or our enemy here. Gives two much, there's two primary uh, names of, of Satan, or though there's others. And the, the first is what we see here is uh, the idea that uh, Satan is our uh, our enemy here, and it says in verse 8, it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary. Adversary, literally, it's the word, uh, that's what the, the name Satan is, he is our adversary. The other word that we see in scripture describing him is the devil, which means slanderer. Now, I think in the Christian life, we need to have a important balance here. We need to understand that he's real, but not assign a status to him that is unbiblical. So uh, the idea is in verse 9 where it says, but resist him, personal pronoun. So this is a real being. This isn't just some like mystical force, so to speak. But just to be clear, um, every New Testament writer mentions our enemy 73 times. So this is not just a cursory subject. 38 times the devil, 35 times Satan. He's mentioned 29 times in the gospel. And you know who talks about, about him the most? Jesus Christ himself, 25 times. And it's important to understand how he works. The devil means slanderer. You know, there's three places in scripture that we see him actually speaking. And each time he slanders, right? We see him in Genesis 3 with the fall, right? 
and he is, he is slandering God before man. We see him in the book of Job, verbally speaking, and he's slandering man before God. And then we also speak, see him speaking in Matthew chapter 4 in the great temptation of Christ where he is slandering God to both God and man at the same time and he's defeated. So that's, that's his modus operandi. He doesn't go into this detail, but I want to point out we have a three-fold enemy in the Christian life. Sometimes, you know, that expression, the devil made me do it. Well, he's a finite creature, first off. But keep in mind that there is our own flesh, right? And then the world. So threefold enemy, Satan, the flesh, the world. And they have different strategic exhortations as to how we battle that. Here, Peter says that we are to resist him. Uh, in 1 John, it talks about the world, the system that he operates. And it's defined by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And the guidance there is to flee. Flee. When we encounter that, we run. We actually don't fight. We flee. And then lastly is our own fleshly fallen nature, which the guidance there that Paul talks about quite a bit in the book of Romans is, is to deny, say no to the flesh. As believers, we have the ability to say no to the flesh. Now, when you think about this, the unique thing about resisting uh, Satan or the devil, or if I was to leave here and, and tell you, hey, make sure you resist the devil today, you might look at me, okay? What does that actually look like? Let me, let me bring that home to us because every time in scripture this is talked about it's couched with this idea of submission to God that's what he's saying here is uh, this obedience to God will in turn serve as a battle to resist Satan James 4 7 submit therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you I think conceptually as believers that's a little bit easier for us to understand how do we submit to God? What does that look like? Let me, I jotted down five tangible ways we can resist the devil slash submit ourselves to God. Number one, be ruled by the word of God. You know, it's, it's you know, walking in obedience is hard, but at least the, the prescription for us is quite clear. We need to be, we need to understand what the word says if we are to under, uh, if we're to be able to walk in obedience. Secondly, uh, recognize the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Another word is conviction. Respond to that. Don't play with that because eventually the Bible talks about it. That if there's enough grieving and enough sin, you reach a point where there could be a quenching of the Holy Spirit and then that conviction gets less and less because you, it's almost like you're blowing through red lights time and time again. Thirdly, re resist the first stirrings of temptations. What does that mean? Don't dabble. Don't dabble. You will lose. I am quite confident in that. I will lose. We will lose. If you dabble with sin, we will lose. 
Fourthly, be constantly on guard. That's what he's saying here. He said, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. I mean, it's almost like you've got to look like this. What does that mean? Don't enter into situations that you know are sinful or you have a particular weakness, a certain relationship, or time and time again. If I was to paraphrase this, I would say, be smart, plan, think, be prepared. And then lastly, pray constantly. And that is connected to understanding our own weakness, so to speak. You know, I think when it comes down to it here, as sufferings come our way, the natural response is for us to question God. All aspects of that. Why, God? God, do you love me? God, do you even see me? God, do you hear me? God, and that's that slanderer coming at us and telling us a lie that we know is a lie. So we need to reject that. Don't allow Satan to, uh, to question God's love for us. Now, I was thinking about First Peter, and I was thinking about the youth today, because you talk about individuals that will be paying a cost for standing up for their faith. You think about the youth, those in the room here today. I can tell you, um, this church is behind you in your effort to walk in obedience. Those sitting next to you, your parents, friends who are walking with the Lord, grandparents, ministry leaders all throughout the room, the shepherding team, we are there for you to support you in that endeavor. But keep in mind, you know, the way sin works, I've heard this phrase one time, it's really stuck with me, and it says sin will take you further than you're willing to go. Sin will keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and sin certainly will cost you much more than you're willing to pay. Do not underestimate the, the addictive nature, the fleshly fulfillment, and more importantly, the, the tremendous reaping that comes with sin. You know, one of the things here that excites me about the family pastor coming on and I was thinking about how to couch this, and then on Friday I got an email from Pastor Evan with an update. And listen to what Evan's update says, because he says it better than me in terms of what we want to do in helping the youth in our church to be obedient to God, to resist the devil. This is what he says in the video. He says, we believe that the hearts of our children are a mission field. Evan goes on to say, at the same time, we also recognize their hearts are a battlefield. We believe that Satan is real, he is personal, and that he plays for keeps. He desires the next generation, and he has a plan for the lives. And for him to win, all we really need to have to do as God's people is just stand by. You know, and I... I watched that a couple times. I was looking, I thought maybe Evan or Katie popped in a subliminal message for me to say, Patrick, repeat this. But it was, it was just spot on to hear. And Evan talked about, you know, Ogletown Baptist Church makes no, uh, you know, it is proud of the investment that we make 
in our youth and hopefully bringing on our new family pastor will testify to that as well. So, verse 9 here as we close this out, it says, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. See what the text says? You know, when we go through suffering, we think that it's, it's just me. I'm the only one. The enemy can isolate our thoughts. And what Peter's saying is, even in the most difficult suffering, it's not unique. Once again, do not, you're not on an island. It's not unique. Don't listen to the lies. Verse 10, it says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. Now, you might be, read that and say, a, a little while, and you might say, Patrick, I, I've been suffering you don't understand what I've dealt with throughout my life. You know, and I don't think Peter is speaking to this in a flippant way, but one of the things Christians should do and were called to do, much like the Apostle Paul, who suffered tremendous hardship between the stonings, the time he spent in prison and in dungeons. In 2 Corinthians 4, this is, he captures it the same way. He basically said it's, it's a temporary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory to come. And so as Christians, when we go through, I think the thought is keep our eyes on the future prize that is to come. He goes on here, he says in verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Ultimately, God is in control of all things, even when we don't, we look in our world, we look in our circumstances, we think he's not. Scripture is promising us that his dominion, his rule, his reign will never end. And he closes out with some final thoughts. She who is in Babylon, she, the church that Peter is part of, in Babylon, most likely cryptically, um, speaking of Rome, um, we're about a year away from Nero assuming the throne. Peter's about three years away for he will be martyred for his faith. So although those who he's writing to wasn't necessarily uh, undergoing physical persecution, it has already arrived in Rome and he writes a little bit cryptically. Um, he says, uh, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You know, it's great when a writer, sometimes Paul in the many epistles, he's, he's, he needs to deal with this, he needs to deal with that, he needs to deal with this. Sometimes, like the Gospel of John has a specific reason to writing so that we may know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Um, you know, Luke writes the book of Acts for a certain reason. And Peter here says, why did he write? His main purpose is to stand firm in it. And what is it? The true grace of God. Once again, that's not necessarily, he talks a lot about saving grace, saving faith in chapter 1. But most of it is the sustaining grace by relying on Jesus Christ. And throughout this life, just putting our trust in him that God has a way to impart of, uh, gifts in us that we can continue to move forward. Your greetings, and so does my son Mark, and that would be his spiritual son, John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. 
Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So Peter ends this with a strong message. I would say it's a message of encouragement to shepherds. How they can serve, serve in leadership, what does that look like? And then the responsibilities, the importance of us as Christians to navigate a tough, fallen world. And that is to focus on taking any remnants, any refuge of pride that's in our life, eliminate it, put on the overalls of humility, and be prepared for the battle. Fight, fight, run the race well as a Christian. You know, as as looking at this word, stand firm in it, my mind was reminded of um, a pastor, 19th century pastor, English pastor by the name of J.C. Ryle. And a fairly large church, but on occasion when he would be in the back of their sanctuary and he would, you know, greet the individuals that they they would leave, um, he would shake their hand and he would always utter the same two words. The same two words regardless of what uh, the situation was. You would think that would get old after a while. But the two words that he would always say to them is, keep on keep on. You know, and I was thinking about that, and that's essentially what Peter is telling us in this epistle. Keep on in the faith. When we fail, confess, repent, keep going. When the trials come, and many of us are in trials now, trials are a staple of life. It was pointed out to me once, you know, we're either in a trial right now, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to head into a trial. As they come our way, and the enemy puts thoughts in our mind, God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, God doesn't see you, but but the message is keep on. Keep on believing, stand firm in the faith that we have that ultimately Jesus Christ loves us, he has always loved us, and that he has died for us, and that by believing in him, he will sustain us till the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this epistle, and very applicable, um, certainly in in a world today that has moved quite quickly away from any semblance of biblical morality, where the level of hostility has increased dramatically for those who love you, for those who love the gospel, for those who witness to the biblical truths of the gospel. Lord, it's, in some ways, it's easy to stand up here. It's easy to talk about some points of what Scripture says, but ultimately, we will fail without your help. So, Lord, that's above all what we're asking for is that you would help us, Lord. Whether it's stand firm in our faith or to keep on going in our faith, that's our ultimate prayer, and we ask that you would bless us in that endeavor. Amen.